Hello and welcome to the What's For Dinner show, the podcast for people who put food at the centre of life. My name's Lynn and my aim, along with my guests, is to explore how our food experiences have influenced our lives as well as our waistlines. These were cakes that went mouldy, so she'd cut the mould off, she'd crumble it up, she'd remake it into bread pudding. If people didn't eat the bread pudding, she would cut it up, bag it up and sell it as duck food. For this episode, I find myself in the beautiful Quantock Hills on the edge of Taunton in the garden office of the lovely Becky Wright, a lady who trained as a chef, embraced vegetarianism, quickly realised the health benefits it brought her and became a dietary therapist. She later launched her own counselling company called New Leaf and is later this year going to launch her own brand of gin with flavours inspired by the countryside she lives in. Welcome, Becky. Hello. I'm going to start with a quick fire round. So, you ready? To... I'm ready. Okay, yeah, good, good, good. Go. So, first one, Bake Off or MasterChef? Never watched either. Oh, cream on top or jam on top? Oh my goodness, jam. Jam, okay. Are you a ketchup or a brown sauce kind of girl? Ketchup. Ketchup. Now, long walk or a workout? Oh, that's a difficult one for me. My step counter says I need to do a long walk, but I try and walk up as many hills as I can, so it becomes a bit of both. Yeah, a bit of both, a joint effort. Yes. <laughs> and are you a Facebook or an Instagram lady? I'm trying to be Instagram, but I know a bit more about Facebook, so I'm trying to move to the other side. So I need you to explain yourself. How come you've never watched Bake Off or MasterChef? Well, I don't tend to watch terrestrial TV, to be honest. Um, I tend to have very little time to kind of enjoy television. So when I do, I'll watch something deliberately. But I've never particularly enjoyed competition. I'm not a competition person. I'm not a great believer in competition either. I kind of like everyone to win. So I think I'd find it quite stressful watching it. And, And also, I don't know how people can be quite so excited about it. So I kind of, I couldn't get into that real over the top excitement about food in that way. Yeah. You do sort of bond with the different characters as Mm. well, I think, as well as the food. But yeah, I think you'd have to be interested in in looking at food to to get maximum enjoyment. It'd have to be your thing, really. Yeah. Luckily, it's my thing. So yeah, I do watch it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit about yourself. I've been living in Somerset, honestly, all my life. I've never been anywhere else, really. And um, for the last sort of 17 years, I've been living on the top of the Quantocks. I started New Leaf Workplace Wellbeing uh, when I was very young, <laughs> so not 1992. And in its business, it's grown, you know, and I've grown as part of that. Uh, spirituality is very important to me. And um, I'm a great believer in bringing people together and community. That feels very integral to my sort of belief system. Uh, and I've always been in work which has been really of service to people. So providing something that people would find useful uh, in some way, either for their mental health or for their well-being, that's always been part and parcel of who I am and what I've done, really. Yeah. Well, of course, I suppose food is a way of bringing people together. It can be a community experience for a lot of people, can't it? So, yeah. so tell me a bit about home life when you were a child. What was mealtime all about when you were a kid so from a very young age I was brought up in a hotel and the guests were always served first so what used to happen is my parents would 
put serve all the guests their meals. And because I only got what the guests didn't eat, <laughs> I became quite clever from a young age of going and standing in the restaurant and saying, I really hope someone leaves me a roast potato or I really hope someone will leave me a bit of beef. So what would happen is people's plates would come back and they'd be like a few roast potatoes, <laughs> a bit of beef. And so I I used to kind of say that apparently. I used to go out into the dining room from quite a young age uh, and declare what I wanted people to leave me. But we used to have, we used to do breakfast, lunches, dinners. So I was always brought up in a catering kitchen. Also, my mother was a very, very good cook. So she would be, she would make bread pudding that people would drive for miles to eat. And if they didn't eat it, so this were, these were cakes that went mouldy. So mm. she'd cut the mould off. She'd crumble it up. She'd remake it into bread pudding. pudding right. If people didn't eat the bread pudding, she would cut it up bag it up and sell it as duck food yeah <laughs> and then people would buy the duck food so i think we had the most recycled yeah, bread yeah pudding good habits in in somerset but people would travel for miles just to have it with clotted cream yeah, they absolutely yeah. loved it celebrated and then my mother bought a restaurant in minehead which for a little while i co-worked in with her and then i went and did my catering qualifications so i went off to train as a chef and spent um, four years training as a chef in what was then Taunton College. Yeah. Did really well and then became a vegetarian, which kind of threw it all out the window, really, because I was <laughs> trained how to cook meat, yeah. <laughs> lots of meat. Uh, and it was interesting. So I, I, I realised that I wanted to kind of understand food more and how it affected it, me. Because as soon as I stopped eating meat, I became really well. So how old were you then? About 22, 23. And I then decided to train as a dietary therapist. I wanted to see whether, because it had helped me so much changing my diet, could I kind of help other people? And so I, I trained as a dietary therapist and started to treat illness through diet, put people on really, really strict diets, <laughs> which made them very miserable. <laughs> it might have helped them with their condition, but it, it wasn't good for their mental well-being. That's fascinating because obviously I didn't, I had no idea that that was in your in your mm. background. You've obviously been working in mental health for a long time. So do you feel that our understanding of how food is related to mental health has mm. changed over over the last sort of 20 years or so? Well, there's some very interesting research coming out from mental health. And what is happening is they're realising that the very thing in the brain that we need the uptake of, which is serotonin, so that, that's the kind of chemical that keeps you really nice and mentally healthy mm. and happy, that 75% of that is actually produced in the stomach, in the gut, ah, okay. not yes. in the brain. Now, that changes the way that we will look at mental health in the future. So if we change what we eat and we look after our gut health, then our serotonin levels in the brain will become healthier and the uptake of serotonin into the brain will be better. So gut health was something that always fascinated me. And because of that, I grow uh, bacteria which is um, lactobacillus acidophilus. Mm. So it's the stuff from live yogurt. Uh, and I grow it every day and I drink it every day and I recommend it for other people yeah, to drink yeah. because it, it definitely has an impact. 
if we can just change our diet, if we can look at what vitamins we're taking, minerals, because it's a bit like nature, you know, everything needs everything else in gut health. You you can't just change one thing. You've got to think, well, what about my vitamin D? What about my B vitamins? Have I got enough of a selection of those? Mm. And I, in a way, I wish I knew back then what I now know now, because I would have definitely approached dietary therapy in a very different way because we didn't really look back then we didn't really look at the mental impact i was employed by a health farm and my job was to give talks on it and then hopefully from those talks i would recruit people who wanted to lose weight and mm. but also wanted to kind of make their well-being more i think that the talks were interesting you know people could ask questions the dietary therapy side of it was very rigid Mm. And looking back, I think it was too rigid generally for people, for their kind of well-being. So what I'd notice is they'd start the diet, they'd get results, but they wouldn't, they weren't able to sustain it. Because when you're in a relationship with someone, it's hard if one of you's eating one mm. thing and one's eating something else. So, so was it more of a diet in the terms of denial, which was the sort of... Yes, yeah, you were yeah. very much Classic cutting stuff dieting. out. Later in my life, I started to look at diet from a very different lens, really, because I realised that when people lose weight, they normally have a goal in mind. And I kept thinking, do you know what? I think we could lose weight without a diet. I did an experiment <laughs> in my local village hall. I hired my village hall out for 10 weeks and I invited a group of people to come along and I said, you're going to lose £10 in 10 weeks and we're going to do it together. So we did. We were inundated with people. We weighed them all on the first night. Uh, we measured, everyone measured each other. And then we didn't use a diet at all. In fact, we actually didn't talk about food very much. What we did is talk about our kind of commitment to each other. Because I'd probably lose weight for you, Lynn. Would I lose it for myself? Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. And yeah, yeah. And everything's yeah. become individualised. Mm. You've got to do it for yourself. You've got to do mm. it for your own needs. But I'm far more likely as a human being to want to do it for someone else. Mm. And the average weight loss after 10 weeks was £12. Nobody didn't lose anything. Right. And everyone that attended lost £10 in 10 weeks and we didn't look at diet. Because I guess it's just people being aware of mm. what they're eating and the fact yeah. that, but not actually having to obsess about the, the detail of what they're eating, like yeah, whether they can have this or have that, but just thinking, actually, I'm going to feel good. Yeah, I'm it, gonna... was a, it was a total group yeah. accountability. And it also worked because that group suddenly decided they quite like to go walking together and mm. somebody wanted to start a walking group. So off they went walking mm. and then we did a bit of hula hooping and it just worked. On the final day, we got the head of public health to come yeah. give out certificates. <laughs> and um, we did a, a line of the measurement that everyone had lost uh, using a kind of um, a measurement tape. And it was really powerful. Going back to when you were growing up then growing up in, in a hotel I mean so you must have been surrounded by food and, and cooking mm. the whole time has that kind of does that inspire you to, to cook at home or are you a restaurant person or no I'm a terrible cook oh are you <laughs> I used to be very good 
but I've lost the hang of it. Uh, I've got into food boxes where I kind of get my recipe for the four days. Mm. I think for me, I don't want to waste time thinking about it. So I like the fact that I know that there's going to be four healthy meals that I can rock up and cook and then I don't have to think too much about it. I can do the drinks. Yeah. I'm yeah. brilliant at cocktail making. Oh, are you? That's and, a wonderful skill. Well, I hope so. <laughs> but I'm just not that interested yeah. in baking or cooking. I kind of feel like it's quite an effort in my life. So I try and minimise the effort. So do you think your parents um, wanted you to sort of go into into a food-related industry? Obviously, you did your, your qualifications and stuff. Yeah, I think they did. I, they didn't put pressure on me, but... It's like taking over the family business, isn't it? I think both my sister and I, they would have liked us to have taken it mm. over. But by the time they sold the business, neither of us wanted to be involved yeah. in it. So we didn't we didn't go down that road. Um I was interested. I don't think I would have the patience to work with guests in that way. And back then, you know, it was su- the life. I don't remember having like holidays mm, or yeah, as a family. It really was kind of committed yeah, to twenty four seven. Yeah, the, yeah, every, every yeah. month. And I don't think I'd want a life like that, really. I mean, it's strange because I'm sort of stepping into the beverage industry at the moment. Yeah. I might be going full circle. <laughs> I don't know. So tell me about what you're doing to move into that. I've always had an interest in gin and distilling. It was always something that fascinated me, but I didn't know anything about it. So last summer, I retrained as a gin distiller. Quite a big step, really, for me, because I think I've just all I've done since leaving school is mental health, anger management, psychotherapy, you know. Mm. So to suddenly move into a whole different world, it for me, it was just quite exciting, quite interesting. You know, I'm in my kind of mid-50s now and I was thinking, I just want to do something just slightly different. Yeah, something using a different yeah. part of your brain, as they and say. And I like to meet, I don't want to work from home. I don't want to be sat behind a desk. I like to really have chance to meet people, laugh with people, bring people together. And so alcohol is a good conduit for that. And uh, I discovered when I started distilling, I mean, I was only using a still in the kitchen, tiny little thing. Um, I was creating some very unusual flavours. And when I did a gin tasting at home, strangely, all my friends showed yeah. up. <laughs> yes. It's the only time I've held a party <laughs> when they've actually all rocked up. We started with 11 gins, got it down to three that people liked. Mm. And now I've just redistilled those three. Um, and we're hoping to go into production in August to have it ready for September for those sort of months leading up to Christmas. Christmas yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went through a whole sort of experience of what we're going to call it, you know. So I was quite keen to make a gin out of oak because although whiskey is often put into oak barrels, they're looking at gin going into oak barrels. But I actually wanted gin to be an ingredient in the gin or a flavour. Mm. So I've been playing with that. Um, and also I've always had a passion for oak trees and I kind of go and visit them each day and they're very much part of my world, really. I'm trying to solve community problems at the same time in my life always is, is you know, I live in the middle of nowhere. There's no pubs where I live. People are quite isolated. There aren't any kind of community events. So I thought, hmm, so if I opened a pub... I could somehow solve one problem and then I could launch the gin into the pub mm, when we're ready. Yeah. 
So that's what's happening. That's what's happening. Yes. So we're about to open the Dryad Inn in a little pop-up pub. And then if that's successful, we'll we'll bring the gin into it in a couple of months. The oak, that's really fascinating. So mm. do you do you soak bark then? How, how do you extract wow. that flavour or I guess aroma as well, perhaps? Yeah. So I started off by leaving it overnight and letting everything soak in it. Mm. But it was too strong. Mm. So... I'm now experimenting with putting it into the column of the still. So if you like, the the, the gin distills, but as it heats up, the hot vapour goes through the bark. Oh, so okay. what you get then is quite an interesting kind of woody aftertaste to the gin. So what snacks do you serve with gin? Well, if I had my way... It would be definitely olives, maybe a little bit of sourdough, some really mm. nice sourdough or uh, bread. I'm a bit of a crisp fan. Oh, yes, me too. And I don't particularly like posh crisps. I quite like rough ones <laughs> um, just because I like some of those kind of tastes of like salt and vinegar and yeah. things like that because they take me back to my years of uh, being in pubs. If I could be very decadent, a really nice roast potato on the side would be fabulous. I quite like rosemary flavour. So if there was like a rosemary flavour crisp or something mm. with that in, I think rosemary goes very well. But I'm also quite interested in actually serving up some different plant heads that you could find in your own garden. So I'm just playing with that idea at the moment. I mean, you've said that you're not that big on entertaining in terms of cooking meals and things. And I guess if you grew up in a hotel, that wasn't something that was part of your sort of parents' mm. uh, repertoire? We didn't because we, we always had guests. Yeah, So yeah. the guests became friends sometimes, but you would still always be cooking for guests. Yeah. So I don't remember, only at Christmas, I remember Christmas Day, we would have a large table with the family. And definitely. was it, you know, turkey dinner or? From what I can remember, it was very, very traditional. Mm. I remember it kind of turkey or beef, that kind yeah, of yeah. thing for Christmas. Um, I mean, at birthdays, occasionally we'd have friends over. Our house was quite popular because it was quite big. Lots and, of room to run yeah, around. And, and you also and... have to entertain yourself when your parents lead yeah, a busy yeah, life. So I yeah. remember being very kind of independent and we used to go off and hang out and do all sorts of things in kind of Minehead or those sort of places mm. where we grew up. Was food a, a memorable part of your of your growing up? It is something I think of fondly. If I was cooking again, my problem was I would always cook too much because my mother would cook enough peas for 20 people. Yeah. <laughs> and I find it quite difficult when I cook to only do enough. And she was a very traditional cook. She got her head round vegetarian food a kind of bit later on. But in, I used to often bring my meal because she would like, I don't really know what to do for vegetarians. Mm. Like, so when you went home, kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was always, I'd very often sort of bring it, bring a dish with me. I don't have a problem with people eating meat and my, my partner's a meat eater. I just personally don't want to, don't want to eat it myself. But I don't mm. have a problem with other people kind of eating it, which I know a lot of vegetarians are very kind of fundamental in their sort of mm. views. I'm a bit more kind of live and let live. And if that works for someone, then that's fine. But I wouldn't want to be involved in that. When you first decided to become a vegetarian, was it an ethical thing or a health thing, would you say? It was actually fancying this bloke. Oh, okay. I, I, I love things. We had a very... Um, <laughs> very attractive man who worked in the local nightclub that I had a bit of a shine for. When we got our restaurant, we employed him as the chef. 
but didn't realise that he actually fundamentally didn't want to cook meat, mm. which is difficult when you've got a restaurant. Yeah. So I was, again, trying to get into his good book. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll eat what he eats, you know. thought that might be a good way in. And <laughs> I put his head too shallow. And so... <laughs> He sort of said, eh, well, I ate like, you know, we, uh, so I did. And I suddenly thought, oh, that's interesting. I actually feel better. I didn't get a stomach ache, mm-hmm. didn't feel that real kind of heaviness after eating. And I thought, well, that's quite interesting. It was kind of initially through fancying him. Uh, I did end up going out with him. I was going to so say, was did it res- work? It did work. And then I thought, I thought, actually, no, I prefer it. So that I did that around 18. So I've never eaten meat since then. So you've never only- wavered? No, I haven't actually. But in truth, it is the only thing I've ever stuck to. Yeah. (laughs) And obviously, I know you don't cook for your friends, but, you know. If I was. What would you do? I'd probably do something pastorish because it would be pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you could go far wrong with that. Definitely do a nice pudding. It was a great dish that I've got a friend who's the most amazing cook and she always inspires me and kind of gives me recipes. And she did this sort of layered chocolate kind of dish. And when I've made that, people have gone like, wow, Mm, so that's my kind of go to. So that's but they can't come back too often because they'll get the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. right. So I've got three more slightly silly questions. Go on. So if you were going to describe yourself as an item of food, what would you choose? I'd like to be one of those fruits that you occasionally see in a supermarket. You're not quite sure what you're getting and you know that you probably have to cut into it to see what's inside. And if you if you had a fairy godmother, which I'm sure we all do have one, yeah. he or she could help you change one thing about your approach to food. What would you like to change? Indigestion. It's been the bugbear of my Mm. life and I would love to be without it. And is there one piece of advice that you want to share? I think food is very much part of who we are. But of course, as we go through life, we change who we are. And I I guess my advice would be you just be kind of open to new things. Try not to get too stuck in what you eat. Uh, because sometimes that in itself causes problems in terms of our weight gain and our well-being. So I think trying something new, being open to trying something new and really supporting the local economy as much as we can with food is something that I feel is quite important. That's really wonderful, Becky. Oh, Always good. fascinating talking Thank to you. you. <laughs> <laughs> nice to talk about food. Yeah. <laughs> hey, the show's not over just yet. Now it's time for a little Nugget of knowledge. So I just want to say, Paul Boris. No, not that one, not that one. I'm talking about Boris Becker. He was jailed back in May for not disclosing assets he owned during bankruptcy proceedings. And apparently, I've been reading, that he has struggled to adjust to life in prison. Noisy neighbours, smelly toilets and, oh my God, he's being served corned beef. And he's not happy. So it prompted me to look into the history of this famed but often derided food staple. And this week's knowledge nugget is corned beef. Michael, have you ever had corned beef? I have, yeah. Corned beef hash was basically, is basically how I've had it. So do you know 
what it is? No, I think I think I'd, I'll let you answer that one. <laughs> so basically, it's salt cured beef. And do you know why it's called corned beef? No, you don't know that either. I'm not, nor did I before I researched it. Basically, the term corned comes from the use of large grains of rock salt which uh, are used to preserve the beef, basically. So what's that got to do with corn? How do you do Well, corn, the, 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 the large grain rock salt granules were called salt corns. Ah, okay, okay? salt corns. So the, okay. the, 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 the beef, typically back in the day, uh, you know, a, a brisket yeah. cut of beef, um, and it would be packed into a pot with and surrounded by salt corns. Salt corns. Ah. And that's why it was called, or that's why it is called corn beef. Corn beef production, as we know it, started in the 1760s, which was kind of coinciding with the Industrial Revolution, Britain, Europe and America. Wow. Although it's actually been around in various regional cuisines since the 12th century. So, yeah, so it's got a long history as a preserved beef product. Commercial production uh, started really in the in Industrial Revolution, produced as a staple food to feed the military. So, when you were growing up, Michael, was corned beef ever on your dinner plate? I can't remember it. Which is interesting because for a long time, Ireland was actually the largest manufacturer and exporter of corned beef. So, why wasn't I been eating corned beef, you know, all the time then? Well, because it was really being exported. Um, so basically, it's a, it's one of those foods that boosted the wealth of British colonists yeah. um, in Ireland at, at the time, and also possibly contributed to the Irish famine. So much of the land in Ireland was used to rear beef, um, which was then either uh, exported back home to to Britain. That the you know Irish native Irish population had to farm on much smaller plots of land, lower grade yeah. soils. That's where heritage of uh, you know Irish and the potato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Started really. Yeah. So, yeah. And really, it was only when large numbers of um, Irish people were emigrating, particularly to the US, in the late 19th century, that um, corned beef be- started to become popular. Uh, so, really, I guess it's an American Irish right, tradition. Right, okay, yeah. You know, it's yeah. something that nowadays it, um, is eaten at, on St. Patrick's Day. Right, because I think of corned beef hash as kind of an American dish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Rightly or wrongly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and it's a, so it's an Irish uh, American dish, um, but also with Jewish roots, because a lot of Irish people lived in the same neighbourhoods as right, okay. Jewish immigrants. And so, yeah, so that was a kind of like a shared... Fascinating, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a shared dish. <laughs> Have you heard the, the, fr- the phrase bully beef? No. So bully beef is what the military, particularly in the UK, called corned beef given the fact that it was preserved product mm-hmm. and it was canned, um, it travelled well um, and it kept well. So it was obviously great for, for the military. And in the World War One and World War Two, um, it was a staple food, really, of the military. What about the, the corned beef can? Quite a unique shape. Yeah, it is, isn't it, now that I think about it? Yeah, so yeah. it doesn't look like a can of beans. It doesn't look like... Yeah, it's pretty tuna unique, tuna. isn't it? Yeah. And the opening mechanism is a bit weird. It's a bit weird. Well, it's kind of iconic, really. So the corned beef can is um, a tapered oblong. And, of course, it has the little key and the hook mechanism. Means, yeah, yeah. You know, for the military, they could open it easily right. without having to have a can opener okay, or yeah, yeah. a blade. Mm. of. Um, and it slides out and it gets sliced up and eaten with hard biscuits or maybe in a sandwich. 
So do you think corned beef's a healthy option? I would suspect not. You're right. It's not the healthiest. Although it does contain good amounts of vitamin B12 and zinc, but it is high in cholesterol, saturated fat, and obviously salt, sodium. Corned beef hash, cubed corned beef marinated in Worcester sauce. Yeah. Diced potatoes fried up with onion. Mix the corned beef cubes with the diced potatoes and heat them through in the pan. Chuck it on a plate. Top it with a fried egg and loads of tomato ketchup. Lovely. Mm-mm-mm. Really beautiful. Delicious. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering now how Boris was served his corned beef. Interesting. It didn't say that. Maybe, maybe he'll let you know. Maybe he'll write to me and let me know. Thank you for listening. My name is Lynn and I'm the host of the What's For Dinner Show. Thank you to my guest, Becky Wright from New Leaf Workplace Wellbeing. Look out for her gin, which will be launched in the late summer. Check out my other episodes featuring my talented co-host on Nugget of Knowledge, husband Michael. You can find out about his foodie upbringing in 1970s Ireland. And also listen to the wonderful Carrie Crane from Carrie Crane's Health and Fitness, who reveals that being fit and healthy has not always been on her agenda. Don't forget to subscribe to the What's For Dinner show on whatever platform you're listening to this on. It'll mean you won't miss out on future episodes. They'll be delivered straight to you. You can leave a review. That'd be fantastic. Thank you also to Rick Simmons at Verbu for his support with this project. And also a shout out to Pixelby for the jazz music. Hope you enjoyed the show. (laughs) 